The National Football League and Aristocrat Gaming are excited to announce NFL-themed slot machines only from Aristocrat Gaming. Visit aristocratgaming.com to learn more about the NFL's and Aristocrats' NFL-themed slot machines. Gambling problem? Please contact the U.S. National Problem Gambling Helpline at 1-800-522-4700. New Jersey at 1-800-GAMBLER. New York at 877-8-H-O-P-E-N-Y or text H-O-P-E-N-Y 46769 for 21 and older. Hey guys, this is Rajiv. You're listening to Photo Country. As always, we have a great interview today. We are talking to Dean Trammell, a homeboy from Auckland. Today, he's a globetrotting photographer who covers cliff diving for Red Bull. So who's Dean Trammell? Dean Trammell right now lives in Lucerne, Switzerland. He discovered the joy of photography at a mere seven years old. At age 14, he bought a 35mm rangefinder. He later upgraded to an SLR with 35-70mm lens. And three decades later, he's still shooting with the same enthusiasm as when he was seven. He's gone to the Olympic Games, America's Cup, International Rugby, and now he's with Red Bull Cliff Diving. And that has taken him all over the world. His work has been featured in the New York Times, National Geographic, and Sports Illustrated, among many other credits. Wow, such an accomplished photographer. And it was my great honor to talk to him. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for your time. No problem. So I was actually Googling you, Dean, and I found an entry in uh, neighborly.co.nz in Auckland, and it said 12 Kawaka Street, Dean Trammell Photography. Is that you? That was me. Yeah, that was me. So from 12 Kawaka Street to Luzerne, Switzerland, two decades uh, of photography all around the world. How has the journey been, Dean? Yeah, it's, it's been pretty good. I mean, I was looking at spending a bit of time in Europe for photography purposes anyway. My, my father was Austrian, so I had a passport and I could come here without too much difficulty. And in 2007, I had a few opportunities up here. I'd had a couple of work offers up here previous to that. And around about that time, I thought, well, I'll shoot over there for three months and see what the potential is. And the potential was pretty good. So around about that time, I also met my now wife and She's Swiss Italian and living in Switzerland. So I could have almost, if I'd moved to Europe, I would have ended up possibly in Austria, but it turned out to be Switzerland. So yeah, um, been living here. It's a good country. It's in the middle of everything. It's easy to get everywhere. It's safe. It's secure. Everything works. The Swiss are probably the only people on the planet that make the Germans look inefficient, but, which comes with its own challenges. But yeah, no, it's been good. That's great, Dean. How did you get into Red Bull? Well, I've been shooting for Red Bull now for 22 years. I started shooting for them in 99 in New Zealand. They approached me at the time I was working for a company there called Photosport, and that's seen some of my work and thought it was what I was shooting was a good fit for how they wanted their photos to look. So I did a couple of jobs for them in 99, 2000. Then it sort of, sort of grew from there, working for Red Bull internationally in Australia and in Japan and Europe as well. And the cliff diving came along in 2009, they started the World Series. In 2008, I went and shot a couple of events and later that year, I got asked by Red Bull International if I'd be interested in leading photography for the series they were looking to start up and I was stoked because I really enjoyed it up until that point. So yeah, the series started in 2009 and it's just gone from strength to strength. And I mean, no one knew back then exactly what we were going to be doing two years, three years later, but here we are. It's quite a different event, a lot more professional. The, the quality of the diving has increased exponentially and yeah, it's, it's been really good. I, I was never someone who wanted to shoot the same sport or something over and over again. I've seen photographers that just shoot 
for example, tennis, and they go back to the same Grand Slams every year and they know that at four o'clock in the afternoon, the sun is doing this at that court and they run in and they shoot for 20 minutes and they run out again, which is kind of a little bit sad because it's there's nothing spontaneous about it anymore. It's just doing it. But with the cliff diving, we go to so many different places. Everything's uh, new. And when you do go to a new place, personally, I try to shoot it differently to how I've done it the other times so that the content remains fresh. So it's it's more of a sort of personal challenge as much as anything as well. So does that force you to be fresh all the time? Like it's a different location every time? Does that affect the way you shoot? I mean, it doesn't force you to be. I mean, there's some places we go back to and we know that there's a, a shot that is going to be gold every time. So there's, and there's an expectation for people to see that again. So you can go to some locations like we do an event off a bridge in Bilbao and the background is the Guggenheim Museum with all its gold colored metal roof and like some kind of avant-garde Sydney Opera House. And it's quite dominant if you shoot from one specific angle, but you can move around and you can shoot some cool angles of the bridge and under the bridge and different things, but no one wants to see those photos. They just want to see the shots with the Guggenheim in the background. So you kind of, after doing that three times, you kind of go, yeah, okay, I'm over it. I'll just concentrate on what they want. And, and maybe if I see some opportunities just to shoot some shots that I'm going to be happy with, I'll do it, but I'm not going to bust my balls just to um, do that. So has your approach changed over the years? So what does it take to do a cliff shoot? Does it take a lot of planning? I, I'm not the biggest planner on the planet, to be honest. We have a lot of people that will go to locations and things. The, a good example is, is you do teaser dives sometimes where someone will go out and check a location and they'll run around and take lots of cell phone photographs and videos and, and then show it to you. And I just cannot get a grip on exactly what it will look like and where I would want to shoot from until I'm standing there. And if in five or 10 minutes of walking around and climbing up and down rocks and things, I can work out where it is that I want to shoot from. But um, looking at sort of third hand, second hand material, it's just not really feasible. So I, I tend to say, well, yeah, we can do this, we can do that, blah, 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 but we won't really know until we're on location and we can really see if this is going to work. So that's kind of my planning. And even on location, I'm a day-to-day -day kind of guy. Tonight, I'll look at what's happening tomorrow. So have you ever regretted not becoming a marine biologist? <laughs> Sometimes. Living in Switzerland, uh, you don't get much sea unless you're traveling. And I do miss the sea growing up in New Zealand, Hawke's Bay. We just lived at the beach in the summertime. And I just love being in the sea and still miss it. And just having recently got back from a job in the Mediterranean, I was jumping in the water wherever I could because it's not the same being in a lake compared to the sea. But yeah, I still, I mean, I enjoy the marine aspect of the job that I do. Do you get into the water while shooting those uh, cliff diving shoots? Not often. I mean, I have done a couple of times, but... The, the thing is, I'm not an in-water photographer and you can, you can do it. I have a border, a water casing and things, which I have just a lightweight version, which I can use if I need to, but generally I'd rather bring in a specific photographer to do that work when we have a location, which is good, clear water and a location where from water level, it looks dynamic. Some places just doesn't make sense because looking up from the water where they're diving from might be the most boring shot on the planet or you've got really mud, muddy water or bad clarity or whatever. So if it's somewhere cool, like a couple of years ago, we were in the Philippines, it was a no brainer to bring in a in-water photographer. So for that kind of thing, I'd rather bring in a, a specialist for one or two, three times maybe in the year and just stick to the stuff that I know I'm better at, which is on terra firma. You must have shot in tons of beautiful, spectacular places and locations. Is that one location that kind of stands out for you? That's, this is one of those questions which I can't truthfully answer because A, there's been so many really cool places and locations and 
situations and B, I forget about stuff really quickly. And and then I have to dredge back through my memory. I mean, there's, there's some locations we go to once and once only, and you wish you could go again. We've been to in Mexico, which are quite dynamic. We recently did a cave dive where they dove bright sunlight into a dark hole 26 meters deep, which looked kind of very freaky and was quite a scary dive. We have had Orlando Duque diving out of a helicopter in front of the Statue of Liberty, which is quite memorable in itself. In the Azores, we go to an island which has amazing rock formations and a big monolith and it always makes great photographs. But there's so many, I mean, there's, I can't sort of pinpoint one specific one, which I go, yeah, that's definitely the standout. There's, there's so many that are spectacular. And I mean, that's one of the beauties of the sport is if we're going to go to a new location, you're always looking forward to it because you don't know, it could be your new favorite, so to speak. I was actually looking through your photographs and I saw that you had done a dive at Jodhpur in India. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. That was cool. I mean, going to India was cool. I've always wanted to go to India, but I always thought I'd be going there to photograph cricket, ironically, but um, cliff diving as it turned out. But yeah, I mean, I've never been to India and I ended up going twice in six weeks for two different projects. One was that we had the breakdancing world finals in Mumbai. And then, then we had this in Jodhpur, the cliff diving project into the step well. And I mean, that was a pretty nice place. We have the, this, what it looks like with all the steps going down to the small water area at the bottom and things. And at the right time in the morning, there was the light was hitting it quite nice, very orange and very typically Indian location. But I mean, the trip itself was cool. We had a bunch of local fixers there helping us out, taking us around and going and exploring a couple of local bars and, and having a, a wedding procession going through the streets as we were out there, which we followed along for 20, 30 minutes just to be a part of it because it was so much fun. But I mean, that's that thing. They say incredible India and it really is. It's, as a big fan all my life of Indian food and things like this, it was just so good to be there. Yeah, it's, it's been two years since I've been back home. It's been quite crazy and pretty stressful for all of us. You know, we've got family there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was in, when was it? November 2019 when we were there. And, and then that was the last plane I was on until flying to Azerbaijan in, when was that? April, I think, of this year. So it was... 18 months or so, 19 months, I hadn't been on a plane from India to Azerbaijan. But yeah, it was, yeah, 2020 was definitely a weird year. Everything just got cancelled. So what did you do during lockdown? How did you keep yourself productive? I mean, it was a hell of a thing because you have a bunch of things, a roadmap through the year of what it is you're going to be doing. And it's generally quite a few projects which just reoccur or clients who are going to come back. And in the case of 2020, all the stuff that you had scheduled was postponed and then cancelled. And so you're still waiting to do the jobs potentially, and then they fell over. And it's not that you had the opportunity to then rush around to look for other clients and things. And as the, the lockdown sort of hits and everything, it wasn't really possible to do much anyway. My wife and I have a five and a half year old boy who four and a half just over four when this all went down. We live in an old farmhouse in the country, which needs a bit of maintenance and works. So last year was an opportunity to sort of do a few things around here, fix a few things up, some carpentry, some painting, getting the vegetable garden into shape. Had like 120 kilograms of tomatoes alone last year. So making pasta sauce and things. But I mean, from that perspective, it was productive. And because my wife does the same job as me, she's also a sports photographer and we travel together for, for work a lot. We were both in the same boat. So we were both home and had the time to just focus on being around and happily we don't get sick of each other's company. So it's, it worked out okay. I'm not one of the COVID divorces. <laughs> so Dean, tell me, how is it living with another photographer, having two photographers under one roof? How does that work? Well, no, it does have some advantages. I mean, you never have to discuss buying a new lens 
you just, you just order it. You just go, Hey, I've just ordered a new lens. Oh yeah. Really? What is it? But yeah, it's fine. I mean, we met as photographers on a job and uh, yeah, we've, we've worked together on projects. We work together on the cliff diving. We've been doing that together since 2010 as well. Those other things we do work for clients here in Switzerland together and it works really well. I mean, we can take a phone call and say yes. And the client has two photographers and only has to book one room. So it. It has its advantages, and I mean, we don't have any issues with with that. I mean, when we're at home, the the talk is not often about photography. To be fair, if work things come up, we talk work. But the rest of the time, there's plenty of other stuff in life to keep you occupied. So, so yeah. I was also reading that Ridley Scott is your major influence for your work. How did that happen? That's, that's a bit of an odd one, and I'm interested that you picked that up from somewhere. It it was a few years ago. I kind of thought that might be the case that he was kind of a little bit of an influence of the way I like to shoot because when I was in New Zealand I had a set of clients and and people that I worked for and there was a certain expectation onto how you shoot when I moved to Europe I did something I'd wanted to do for a long time and that was just completely stop using flash I'm not a big fan of traveling with a lot of equipment I like to work spontaneously and if I see in a situation just be able to shoot really quickly and I don't like the intrusive nature of flash if you're using flash spontaneously, then it's a distraction to the people. And if you're setting up lights and things, it's just a ball ache to, it takes time and space and all these kind of things. And you have to hump all this extra equipment around. So once I started shooting without flash, I was enjoying more and more just trying to shoot gritty stuff and dark. And if it's dark, I'll just shoot it dark. If there's just a certain amount of uh, light hitting someone's face or whatever, then I just go with that. Or I set something up in such a way that there's just a bit of side light. And it harked back to when I Blade Runner back in 82, I think it was when it first came out. And just the way that was filmed is very much a style that I like and other subsequent, I mean, alien movies and things that he's done have a look, which I quite like. And I think subconsciously rather than consciously, it influenced maybe the, the way that I like to shoot things. And if it's dark, I'm not trying to make it lighter. When I shoot in a dark situation, I'm not trying to overexpose to compensate for the darkness. I, I want to keep the darkness. My wife is classic. She always says, yep, your photos are always dark compared to mine sort of thing. But it's like, yeah, that's how the light was. I don't want to punch it up. And I mean, unless someone says your photos are too dark, then I don't feel any need to change that. So yeah, I think, I think it's more of a subconscious thing. And, and when I get, have been asked what's the influence of a photographer, I don't really have one person I can point at, but I think that Ridley Scott connection is, is maybe something. Yeah. My favorite movie from a cinematography perspective is The Revenant. Have you seen that? No, I actually sat down to watch that like a week ago because it's on my list of movies to watch and I started to watch it. And then I got a phone call. And then when I hung out from the call, I was like, look, it's a long movie. I'll be still watching this at 1.30 in the morning. So I just put it down. So yeah, I just went it was, to look at it. It was just like uh, you said, it's completely short and available light. Oh, yeah. 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 So it's, they've not used any artificial light anywhere in that film. So it's nice. really amazing to watch. Oh, cool. And another good reason to watch it then. So Dean, you've been shooting for so many years. Has your gear changed over time? Yeah, I mean, when I was doing a lot of press work and media work and sports in New Zealand and things like that, it comes with a set of lenses that you, you use as a requirement. You know, you're shooting rugby night games under lights, so you need a 400 2.8 or a 300 2.8. Back in the days when you were shooting film, when I was traveled with the All Blacks through Japan, France, and Italy for five weeks back in 2000, and that meant carrying not only a 400 2.8, but also a film scanner and developing cans and chemicals and everything because you had to develop your own film, color film after the game in the hotel room and scan it and then send the photos back to New Zealand. With digital, obviously, that all changed. You didn't need all that equipment. But then 
as digital ISO quality improved, you didn't need a 2.8 lens anymore. You could also shoot night stuff with an F4. So suddenly your kit could get a lot smaller. And as I said earlier, the less gear I have to carry, the better. So zooms were the easy way to do the job back in the day, but I always sort of liked primes again, for the fact that I can shoot in low light and not have to worry about lighting anything. So yeah, the kit definitely moved more into the prime lens department in the last 15 years or so, 15 to 20 years. And then when it was 2017, I switched from Canon to Nikon. So that also meant, okay, what lenses do I get now? Because not everything is the same. So my, I kept changed a little bit when I, I did that. For example, I had a Canon 135 F2, which I loved, great lens. Nikon don't do one of those. So I've got a one, 105 1.4 instead, which is an amazing lens, but it's a bit, little bit bigger and heavier, but it's quite comparable. But yeah, I have like usual, too many lenses. I have three zooms, which is a 14 to 24, 24 to 120 and a 70 to 300. So for some jobs, the 7300 is just good to have. I know I probably don't need it, but it's good to have if you need a little bit of extra reach and it's a, it's a lightweight lens. And the others quite often I'm doing jobs where you're sitting on the back of a motorbike or somewhere where you just switch lenses all the time. So something like a 24, 120 is perfect for that situation. And then for primes, I have a 20, 35, a 50, a 58, a 105, a 180 and a 300. 300 is a F4. I try and kind of use those wherever I can most of the time. My wife also has a 16 mil fisheye, so I can borrow that. If I need, if I need to, and we have a, we have a 150 to 600 a Sigma that we just have in the cupboard for sometimes if you need something long, but that doesn't get much use to be honest, but they're sort of relatively cheap lens. So you can sort of have it there for when you need it three or four times a year. But the beauty I've had with, with the switch to Nikon is their professional service means that here in Switzerland, at least I can get in touch with the guy and say, I need a 600 F4 next week for three days and it'll be on my doorstep the next morning at no charge and you use it and then you send it back to them or drop it back off to them. So it means that you don't have to have thousands of dollars tied up in lenses that you use two or three times a year for a specific purpose. So that's right. nice. So do you do a lot of post-production on your photographs or you're the sort of photographer who wants to keep it as natural as possible. I want to keep it as natural as possible, but at the same time, I need to post-process to a certain degree because everyone is post-processing. And if you leave it too natural, then your photos look a little bit flat mm. and uh, not as lively as they can be. But I try and be a photographer rather than a photoshopographer. So I'm trying to do is <laughs> get my exposures and everything as, as good as possible with the camera so that it limits the amount that I have to do once I put it through. So now everything's raw. So you drag the scales around a little bit just to get the, the look right and then drop it into Photoshop and to crop it and dodge and burn here and there if need be. And that's it. So definitely tweaking the clarity and the contrast a little bit, making sure I've got, always got blacks in the photo and that sort of thing. And then just, yeah, trying to bring out the detail here and there with the dodge or whatever, when I've got it into the Photoshop, but yeah, I try and keep it as straightforward as I can. So one final question, Dean, what advice will you give to your younger self? Yeah, good question. Don't drink so much. Nah, um, I would probably say to have a belief in yourself because I found it for the longest time. I didn't believe that I was that good as a photographer or that I couldn't keep going, that it was just luck up until this point in time and that today was the day that it was all going to go horribly wrong and everyone was going to realize that I wasn't good at what it was that I was wanted to do and some sort of self-doubt, I don't know. I, I guess it's a personality trait to some degree, but because I like to, I like to create a good impression and I like people to like what it is that I'm doing. I think most people are like that. So I definitely was a little bit in the back of my mind concerned about stuff like that, whereas I should have just got on with it like I'd have in later years and just went, yeah, all right, this is what I do and this is how I shoot. And if you like it and you come back, then I know I've done something right. But yeah, it's probably would be the most useful advice I'd say is just have faith in your, 
in what it is that you're doing. Thanks, Dean. That was awesome advice to a younger person or someone who's just starting out in photography. Thanks for your time and uh, it is great talking to you. Hey, no problem at all. And that's a wrap for episode number eight, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Dean, for coming on the show. It was a great honor talking to you. I had great fun putting this show together for you. Don't forget to share this episode with someone you know who likes photography. As always, keep clicking. This is Rajiv signing off. I'll see you next week. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino was America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.